Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my normal co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hi, Bill. I'm glad I'm considered normal, at least Well, today. normal in terms of frequency. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave it at that. Um, so a lot happening in the news so since we last spoke to our audience here. What's some of the things yeah, that a couple we're things. dealing so with? We had the uh, USNI news team was here in Beach Hall yesterday. Normally they're out, you know, gathering stories and talking to, you know, sources, et cetera. Uh, once a week or so, most of them uh, come in and, and sort of check in at the Mother Beach Hall here. And uh, so I was chatting with Ben uh, Warner and Sam Legrone and Megan Eckstein about the, mainly about the budget, right? The, uh, President's budget rolled out last week, so now the the negotiations are ongoing with Congress. The decision to not uh, refuel the the Truman at its midlife point has gotten a lot of attention. We've published uh, two pieces and proceedings uh, online last week. Uh, Mark Kansian, uh, oft often uh, proceedings author over the years, uh, writing that that was a wrong decision. And then we had Captain Retired Barney Rubel, who taught at the Naval War College for a long time, has written for proceedings many times as well. And Barney published a piece yesterday saying, no, no, this is a good strategic decision. Uh, strategy means that you have to make a trade-off when, uh, you know, if you don't have un- unconstrained resources, and we don't. Uh, and so this is a logical choice. Secretary Shanahan or Acting Sec- Secretary Shanahan he was on the Hill uh, a few days ago uh, or a week ago defending the decision to not, you know, refuel. So the this crew. is a real, this isn't just a, a they're kind of doing chicken no, to free I, I, up. I don't think so. Okay. Right? So it, it, at first choice. it seemed like that maybe it was that. And the yeah, that was the initial yeah, and, take. Yeah. But then uh, a couple of days later, uh, last week, uh, you know, acting sec def Shanahan was up on Capitol Hill in front of the the Senate Armed Services Committee. And he was defending that decision and saying, here's why, here's the business case for it. Uh, but the debate, you know, continues and we'll see if the Virginia, you know, Senate delegation and congressional delegation, if they agree, you know, it, it remains to be seen, right? So the, the, the budget is a negotiation at this point. Sam was saying that his, his personal bet on when we'll actually have a budget, an approved final budget is December. Uh, so this could go for, go on for quite some time. You know, we'll see. Hopefully we have it in, uh, September and don't have to have a series of CRs, but Sam was saying, yeah, he, his prediction is that we'll have a, at least one continuing resolution, if not more than that. So remains to be seen. But the analysis that uh, the, the three of them have done on the budget has just been terrific. We talked about this a little bit last week and in, in the conversation yesterday, uh, you know, they, they said the, the main themes that they're seeing is a shift towards uh, higher technology, new R&D, more unmanned platforms and giving up, you know, for example, slowing down the buy of uh, LPD, uh, the San Antonio class and, and the, the LPD, the improved San Antonio class that they've essentially slowed that way down to free up money for R&D and, and high tech new weapon systems. They also said that they're hearing from a lot of their sources that the Navy is moving towards in this idea of unmanned, uh, both uh, surface and, and subsurface platforms that they are attritable. In other words, there's no people on board. And if we are in a high, high end conflict, we can afford to lose a few. News today, uh, saw a piece from, from Ben Werner saying that, uh, the Navy plans to put on board a DDG 21 or DDG 51 by 2021, a high power laser that can shoot down incoming small aircraft and maybe even strong enough, powerful enough to, to shoot down incoming cruise missiles. So, so two years away. Yeah. Just 
just a couple of years away, right? Wow. Two two years. So that's you know, it's, and they they've had a lower power uh, laser that they that they tested on USS Ponce a couple of years ago, the Helios system, uh, and now I think they're looking to ramp up the the you know the projected power of that system and actually be able to shoot down uh, some you know incoming targets that have got some energy to them and some speed to them. So that that'll be interesting to see. Certainly fits in with. Uh, what uh, former Secretary of Defense Bob Work calls electric weapons and, you know, the need to have a magazine that you're not going to run out of after 96 VLS cells, right? So yeah, uh, yeah. anyway, interesting stuff. I wanted to give a shout out to uh, Robert Stewart, retired senior chief, uh, who contacted us about the podcast last week. We were talking about the F-14 here and the bird farm and the Naval Academy. And uh, Senior Chief Stewart said, uh, hey, great to hear the podcast. It was uh, fun hearing about the, the F-14, the painting, and his son is active duty and is uh, one of the, I guess, Airframes, Airframes guys. The ZFA-213. And, yeah. and actually painted that airplane right. uh, when, it, when it came back up. Back in November, last, last fall, when we did the first fall. time. So wanted to ensure the, the dad that, uh, that his son's work was not in vain. We're not repainting it. We, right. We've just done a little bit of touch-up work including resizing the logo on the vertical stabs. It was too small before. Um, so, yeah, thanks to the 213 guys. Um, and, and we're going to do a um, – we've already done kind of a ribbon cutting, but this is going to be a ribbon cutting redux um, when it's all, you know, super Gucci'd up. We're going to clear coat the whole thing and so forth. Another shout-out to um, the Bell Boeing team for the 30th and, and the Marine Corps and AFSOC and everyone else that's flown the V-22 for the 30th anniversary since the first flight of the V-22. As I've said a number of times on the show, I worked on that program. It was my first job out of the Navy um, from 02 to 05, returned to flight to Milestone 3, and, and so I obviously have, uh, have skin in that game. I, I also flew the airplane, uh, not piloted the airplane, flew in the back when I was embedded in Afghanistan around Helmand province. And, um, you know, it's a very capable craft. So congratulations to everyone uh, involved in that, uh, in that airplane. It's a lesson in defense procurement. You know, as we've said many times for your effort, both in terms of, 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 you know, in this case, lives sacrificed during testing and money invested, you get a capability. Right. And so this is the same conversation I'm sure we'll have with Admiral Winter about JSF in a few weeks. Um, and that's a good uh, point. Right. So, you know, it, it's it, sometimes it's it's messy. Um, and but, uh, you know, the machine does yield a capability that doesn't mean we don't spend too much and there's too many redundancies and there's a lot of bureaucratic waste. But here's a good example of for all of that effort, you got a, a pretty re- revolutionary next generation capability. So, again, congratulations to uh, V22 folks for that milestone. OK, this week we're uh, uh, very excited to have a uh, uh, I guess you would call him an unorthodox guest by uh, by proceedings podcast standards. Right. Um, I had the uh, the pleasure of meeting him in person uh, at Third Eye Comics on Saturday, where he and the and the artist of the title we're going to talk about, Russ Brown, were uh, here for a signing. And so I, I admittedly um, I've I've I loved Tintin and other graphic novels when I was a young man, but I'm not kind of a a, a, a a huge fan of the of the genre necessarily. But I will tell you, I got there and I looked out the back door, and you would have thought that uh, Garth was uh, John Bon Jovi. 
um, you know, because <laughs> there was a line. I mean, people are sitting in lawn chairs. It was a line as far as the eye could see. You know, they opened the door at the appointed hour and they just streamed in. In fact, if you go up um, my Facebook page, but also I think it's on the Naval Institute Facebook page, you can see this video I made of, that, of people streaming the front door. He, he is, uh, you know, a quote-unquote rock star in the graphic novel genre. And so we're very pleased to have Garth as our guest on the show today. Hello, Garth. How are you? Hello there. Pleasure to be here. Before we get to Garth, I want to also introduce, well, Megan's been on the show before, but Megan Sakelli is from the Naval Institute Press. And uh, Megan, if you could, can you just sort of frame what the uh, the Dead Reckoning imprint is all about? And then we'll, uh, we'll talk specifically about Night Witches and Garth's uh, background. Absolutely. So I'm the marketing manager at Naval Institute Press and Dead Reckoning. Dead Reckoning is a graphic novel imprint of Naval Institute Press, uh, meaning that we publish graphic novels that are in the same uh, vein of the mission of Naval Institute Press. Uh, they do stand on their own at, because they are graphic novels, but in this way, we think that they're going to reach a new audience um, with the same kind of ideas that most of our books already um, kind of put out there. So they'll, they'll be reaching new audiences about history, about a lot of different things that maybe younger individuals haven't quite grabbed onto yet, or even... Um, you know, even a whole new audience of people that maybe have never picked up a Naval Institute press book, but they would be really excited to pick up, you know, The Night Witches by Garth Ennis um, in a way to grab history at that aspect. So it's just a really, um, it's an innovative way to, you know, present this material to a new audience. And we're really excited about doing it. We have uh, Gary Thompson, our lead editor at the at the head of all of this, and he's been fantastic. We published Four books in the fall. We published five, we're publishing five books this spring and we'll continue to do about 10 to 12 books a year with Dead Reckoning. Um, they vary in subject. They vary in, um, art, art form. They vary in author experience. And so it's not just to say, Oh, we're doing graphic novels, but we're doing, um, graphic novels of, of all kinds really, but still geared at the idea of promoting, um, you know, military history to a new audience. So we'll get to exactly how the audience can find out more about all the titles at the Dead Reckoning offers. But Garth, can you tell us sort of your background and how, how you came to be a graphic novelist? Yeah, I grew up in, uh, I grew up in Northern Ireland. And um, when I was 19, I began writing comic books for a British publisher, uh, which um, the work I did came to the attention of a number of American publishers, such as DC and Marvel. And since then, I've... Uh, really turned it into a uh, career. I mean, I've been doing this for 30 years now. Um, I grew up, unlike most people in comic books, I grew up reading war comics, whereas everyone else, it seems to me, read and now wants to produce super, superhero comics, which are by far the dominant genre in the medium. Uh, but I'm interested in war comics, and uh, and I write them really whenever I get a chance. I've been doing that really for about 15 or 20 years now, and I've tried to cover as many subjects as possible, everything from British destroyer on the Arctic run to Murmansk to uh, Israeli tank crews on the, in the Yom Kippur War, and I suppose the uh, the object of today's exercise, the Night Witches, uh, which is the one that Dead Reckoning have uh, have published a collection of. 
So why do you think you made that choice? I know it, was, it wasn't a conscious one, but to go to war comics instead of superheroes. Was there something in your family pedigree, something about being from uh, Northern Ireland that just the atmosphere around you, uh, is there any, can you think of any reason why you chose that or it just sort of appealed to you? I, I think it's, uh, it's purely a matter of chance. I happened to grow up in, uh, in a part of Northern Ireland where the distribution of um, American comics or, or British reprints of American comics was extremely sparse. And so I didn't see superheroes. Um, until much, much later, all I had were the, the mainstream British titles, which were even at, even in the early eighties when I was reading them, still uh, still contained a, a good deal of uh, of war material. So it was really almost random. Um, otherwise, if if I had read superhero comics as a kid, I'm sure I'd have the same devotion to them that everybody else does. Coming to them as an adult, that. That just doesn't really work. Um, so it, it was war comics, and I think my, my interest in them survived because reading, reading the kind of material I did and finding out as a kid that many of the stories were based on things that had happened, were based in reality, allowing for the hyperbole that comes into play when you're, when you're considering boys' comics in the 1970s and 80s, the stories were, in fact, based in real life, and there was something about following following that thread from the comics to an interest in military history, and then eventually, full circle, back to doing my own comics. Um, I think my fascination with them has, has survived because of that, whereas perhaps I... I, I might have lost interest in superheroes or science fiction or, or fantasy, um, the fact that there's this real life aspect has, has kept them with me. So Garth, this story, Night Witches, uh, is based on uh, the story of Soviet women pilots in World War II and how the, the Soviet Union was so mm-hmm. under attack from the Germans that they essentially became, you know, every, every man, woman and child to the fight. Uh, so how did you happen upon this story and then turn it into uh, the script, if you will, for the graphic novel? Um, well, uh, much, much as I've, uh, it's a good example of what I was just talking about. Um, I first read about the, um, the, the woman aviators, uh, that the, the Soviets, uh, put in the line in World War II, um, in a British war comic in the late seventies. Um, there was a character called Johnny Red, uh, a fighter pilot character who I later found out had been created precisely because the editorial team wanted to show the readership uh, that there was more to the, the, the war effort than, than British and American forces, that in fact the Russians had borne the brunt of, um, of Nazi aggression and in fact uh, uh, of defeating the Nazis. So that was where I first encountered them. I grew up, I read more about them, I found out that it was a, it, it was a true story that the... Um, the Russians put uh, a couple of squadrons of uh, woman night bomber pilots in the line in late 1942. Uh, that they became apparently became known as the night witches by their enemy. Uh, the Germans referred to them as Nachthexen, night witches, because they, the aircraft they flew, which were these um, 
I think, completely obsolete PO2 biplanes. Uh, had a very distinctive engine note that even at night meant they could be detected for coming from miles off, so they would glide to the attack. Uh, and, of course, the first the Germans would know about it would be when bombs rained out of an apparently silent sky, uh, hence the term, hence the nickname Night Witches. Um, this is the kind of thing that really tends to seize my imagination, the sort of thing that can only happen in real life that really leaves me feeling I have no choice but to write about it. It's, it's too good a story not to tell. Yeah, and, and your main character here is a woman named Anna Karkova, uh, mm-hmm. so, and, and she, from what I understand, is uh, a, a sort of a, a made-up character, but based on a, a compilation of uh, real-life characters. Yes, she's some, Anna's something of an every woman. Um, I, I'm always quite cautious when I write war stories. This comes down to the notion of them being based in reality uh, on things done by real people. Um, I think it would be disrespectful for me to take an actual historical figure uh let's say nadia popova who who flew with the um the night bomber regiment make her a lead character and fictionalize her exploits and her opinions and her actions and say yes at this point at, at this time she did this said this and thought this um i, I think that puts the the writer on dubious ground and I'd really rather create a fictional character uh, with which to tell, uh, uh, broadly speaking, a, a true story for that reason. So the, the point of view, and when we were at Third Eye, we were talking about Das Boot as sort of a frame, mm-hmm. a, a touchstone of, I don't want to say, maybe warp is the wrong word, but skewed points of view from the Allies' standpoint, right? Where you're watching mm-hmm. that movie and suddenly realize you're rooting for the Germans. Um, so the same happens in, in this book. And, and so you have the, the, the Soviets are the, the good girls, guys, and, and then the Germans are the bad, the bad guys. Is, is there any reconciliation, uh, necessary or is, what, what's that all about in your, in your mind? Well, one of the things I cover in the story, which, which does take place over, it goes beyond World War II, it does take place over, I think, about 20 years all told, is the characters slowly realizing that as uh, Russia's fortunes begin to turn, uh, they're no longer fighting to defend their motherland uh, and later to liberate it. But once they go beyond Russia's borders and they start pushing the Germans back through Poland and Hungary and Romania and so on, that they're not really fighting to liberate anyone. Um, I, I don't think you could really describe what happened to those those countries where they exchanged uh, a Nazi jackboot for a Soviet one as, as being an experience of liberation. Um, and that's something that the women themselves have to come to terms with. Uh, they may it may not occur to them at at the time in the moment, but it's certainly something that they deal with over the years as as they remember what happened and of course as they consider their own experiences um Anna and uh, her best friend who's nicknamed mouse uh they do fall foul of the Soviet secret police um first the n k v d in the war and which then of course becomes the k g b and they end up in the gulags so they in in their uh, in a way, they end up as uh, as victims of the system that they were originally fighting for. Yeah, we don't want to do too many spoilers, but you mentioned Mouse, and she has this 
kind of cool trajectory from maintainer to aviator um, and then some, right? And, and so uh, that, that to me was an interesting trajectory uh, of, of that character. But you, you mentioned a good thing, and, and it, it's, I think, crucial to point out that you don't, you don't romanticize the Soviet circumstance, right? Uh, you, you do pepper the dialogue with these, as you said, you, change, you trade one jackboot for another. Um, and I, I don't know if it's in, I can't remember if it's in Night Witches or in Sarah, where one of the, which is another one of your graphic novels that deal with Soviet snipers, um, where somebody mentions that the Germans wouldn't have gotten this far except for the purges. Right. And so right. never mind what happened after the war in the 1930s, Stalin did a good job of winnowing the talent in a way that certainly hurt them uh, when World War II kicked off. Just about everybody above the rank of major in the in the Soviet army was gone before just before World War II kicked off. Yeah. Right? So imagine getting right. rid of all your generals just before the biggest yeah. war that, that your nation has ever yeah, faced. Bad idea. <laughs> Yes, yeah. of course. And even then, n- not only is the real talent gone when the war starts, but even after that point, when they're really in trouble, when they're being pushed back on all fronts, when all their counter-offensives are failing, uh, anyone mentioning that awkward fact that if only the purges hadn't happened in the 30s, we'd be in much better shape now. Anyone actually saying that is going to be then purged themselves. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. didn't even dare acknowledge the fact. So I, I know that, uh, if, you know, the, the hardcore fans of yours know that The Night Witches, and make sure I get this right, is, is the first time these three stories have been packaged into a single book. And, That's correct, yes. And, and, and so, as you mentioned before, Anna's journey is basically a metaphor for the Soviet Union from World War II through the jet age, you know, and, and uh, again, we don't want to spoil the story because we very much encourage um, the uninitiated to check out this book um, as your starting point in, into the world of graphic novels. To me, it was interesting to watch, or it's the whole meter of it. As I mentioned, I, I haven't read a whole bunch of graphic novels lately, but the pacing of it is is a, uh, a unique uh, craft as well. Can you speak to that a little bit about a, as a writer? Because your afterword is is very tightly written in straight prose, but the way you construct the dialogue in the graphic novel, you you have some sort of chronology things that that are very unique to a graphic novel. How did you learn that, and and what what's that all about? Uh, well, as you say, um, the. This is the first time these stories have seen print together. Um, Originally, they were written as um, uh, shorter stories, three shorter stories about a year, two years apart. Um, And when you start something like that, when I wrote the first Night Witches story, which is set in 1942 uh, on on the periphery of the Battle of Stalingrad, you're not necessarily certain that there will be more. It, in this instance, it turned out that the, the story did well enough, and I was able to, I was able to do another story. So moving on, then we rejoin Anna. Uh, she's actually been booted out of the Night Witches. She's no longer a, a night bomber pilot because of her experiences there, which I won't go into. She's um, become not exactly a troublemaker, but uh, troubled you might say, and she ends up uh, as the only woman in an all-male fighter squadron in time for the Battle of Kursk, which, um, as many people know, is 
one of, if not the turning points uh, of the war in the East. Um, the third story where we, we moved to the end of the war and beyond, by that stage, yes, I knew I was going to be able to finish the story um, the way that I wanted to. And so I was able to I was able to start the story at the end of 1944, move ahead to the early 50s and then jump again uh, to the, the mid 1960s. And as you say, uh, cover the story of uh Russia and her people as a whole, metaphorically. Well, in the afterward, there's an interesting stat that I didn't know, um, and I knew that the uh, Eastern Front, the Ost Front, had been, uh, you know, heavy losses. But you say life was always cheap on the Ost Front for the period June 41 to May 45, to put the matter in appropriately brutal terms. Some 27 million Russians died, killing 4 million Germans. And you say, compare this gruesome toll with the war in the West, where the totals of British and American dead added together did not reach one million. That That's a, a, a incredible eye-opening stat. So I think I got through Nine Witches, and I read the afterward. And in the afterward, you discussed many of the sources that you used for your research. So could you let us know a little bit about like what your research process is like? It's got to be very thorough and very extensive. How do you get into the sources? How do you decide, you know, what kind of historical material makes it into your graphic novels? I, I mentioned earlier that I, I began reading many of these stories in war comics myself. That led me to an interest in military history and then back to my own war comics. And it's that interest in military history that has meant that I've really been reading this stuff my whole life. Um, and, and, you describe it as a research process, but it's it's really just continuous uh, and constant reading and constantly running across stories that, that as I said earlier, I, I feel compelled to tell that I can't not tell. So as time goes by, I've really, you know, on this and other subjects, I've really tried to read as widely and, and as completely as possible. Um, more specifically, um, Probably the first book I read on the night, which is um, there's a very old one by an English writer called Bruce Miles, which is really not much use except for the very bare bones of the story. Um, many of the veterans themselves uh, have actually spoken out against this book. It, it seems that Miles did quite a shoddy job, so it's it's really only of use uh, for, as I say, for the bare bones. Um, Anne Noggle's book, I think, is is really a lot more a lot better. There, she has uh, interviews with the veterans. There are individual accounts like uh, Anna Yevgorova's Red Sky Black Death. Uh, oh, sorry, I should mention by the way, Anne Noggle's book is called A Dance with Death. And there was a book published more recently. Actually, um, it's called Defending the Motherland. And it's by a woman, I'm going to pronounce her name incorrectly, I'm sure, but I think Lyubia Vinogradova. And she has some quite up-to-date research on Russia's woman pilots, some of which I find quite surprising because it deals with some of the, the well-known personalities of the story, like uh, Marina Raskova in, in quite an interesting way. But as I say, I'm, I'm constantly reading, um, reading new material, 
it's as much for my own edification as, as actually just for research. I, I recently read a book that I would recommend to anyone interested in the topic, not just of Soviet women's aviation, but um, but of all the women soldiers that the Russians put in the line. Uh, it's called The Unwomanly Face of War by uh, a Belarusian writer called Svetlana Alexievich, who's a Russian dissident writer um, of long standing. She uh, she used to annoy the Soviets, and now she annoys Putin. I think, um, <laughs> and and I really I really wish I'd known of the existence of this book back when I began all this uh, all these stories. Um, but it's been in and out of print over the years. It is, however, the, the best and most complete uh, book on the subject I've read. It, it has countless interviews with women from. Um, all walks of Soviet military life in World War II. It's absolutely fascinating. Highly recommended. So I wanted to uh, uh, just tell a quick story about, for our listeners who are not familiar with graphic novels and who might be thinking comic books. And so last fall, I was invited to... Uh, to go over and, and talk to people at the Center for Naval Analysis. And so most of these folks are, some are prior, you know, Navy service. Most are civilian, many PhDs, engineers, big, big thinkers. Uh, and so I was talking about the Naval Institute and some of our, uh, you know, new lines of effort. And I mentioned Dead Reckoning and I mentioned graphic novels. And so there was a retired captain, PhD as well, uh, who's been at CNA for quite some time and longtime Naval Institute member. And he said, why would the Naval Institute get into graphic novels? I, I don't understand it. Why would you dumb down history that way? And I was about to answer his question when a young PhD from another table jumped right in and he said, it's not about what's not in there. It's about what's different and how it's presented. And he said, don't think about how it's, how it's lacking from a regular history book. Think about how there's different context and different. It's the, the information is presented differently rather than less than, right? And one of the things he pointed is in many graphic novels, the, the art is just beautiful. And I have to say for our listeners, uh, I, I highly recommend this book because the the art in it is just it's a feast for the eyes. It really is fantastic. And so the you know the text, the story, it moves along very quickly. But boy, the art in this uh, by Russ Braun is and and, yeah. col and colored by Tony Avina. It, it's just incredible. It and really lettered is. by Simon Balan. So that that's a nice segue. Uh, Garth, into the team effort that is the the assembly of a graphic novel. So, uh, how how does this go? You know, do, do, how who leads, follows? I mean, how does this all come together? Uh, well, th there are a variety of ways of doing it. The way I do it is um, we begin with the script. I write the script, uh, which looks not unlike. A a script for a TV show or a movie, if you've ever seen anything like that. It, it's it's broken down um, panel by panel. First, I write the panel description in which I might say something like, um, Anna is talking to Zoya, who seems upset. Neither of them notice the officer walk in the door in the background. And then underneath that, I'll write Anna's dialogue and Zoya's dialogue. Then I'll write the next panel description, and follow it with the dialogue, and so on. The artist then takes the script and simply draws what the script tells them to. Um, and, and so we proceed. The, the, the artist, in this case Ross Braun, uh, will, will have the complete script uh, when he begins the book. In fact, all, all being well, he'll have, he'll have all the scripts for every episode. 
um, and that will allow him to simply break it down image by image and put each page together like that. Um, beyond once he's finished, of course, um, the colorist comes in and fills in all the details in terms of tone, mood, and so on. And then it's it just remains for the letterer to come along and uh, place the dialogue in the balloons and, and have the tales go to the appropriate people. Um, what, one thing you were talking about there, yes, we do still meet resistance in comics or graphic novels or whatever you want to call them uh, from part of the mainstream audience. And I, and I under, to a large extent, uh, I do understand their reluctance. Um, comics uh, in this country and in the UK are still largely defined by the superhero uh, genre, which is, uh, well, let's say it's, it's a well-worn path. Um, 99% of comics published uh, uh, in the US and the UK are probably superhero titles. And there seems very seems to be very little space for anything different. But if you consider comics beyond superheroes, just think of them as one more way to tell a story. They don't have to be defined by genre. They don't have to be defined by the level of ability that you normally associate uh, with comics. Yeah, that of being written for children. You can do anything with comics. You can tell any story, which is something I've been trying to prove for most of my career. Um, so The Night Witches has just been published, Megan. Is that right? Is it available now? Yes, it's uh, its official release date is actually today. Today? Um, well, this is why we're... I knew that. That's why we're doing the yeah, podcast. It's, Fantastic. Um, so what's next for you, Garth? The next thing I'm working on uh, in terms of war comics is a book that, uh, again, Dead Reckoning are going to publish next year. Um, this might be perhaps of a little more interest from um, the point of view of uh, the Naval Institute. It's, uh, it's a graphic novel about the uh, crews of the, um, the, the British Fleet Air Arm crews of the Ferry Swordfish Torpedo Bomber in World War II. Some people may be familiar with this aircraft. It, it, it's a biplane. It looks like a leftover from... Uh, the First World War. In World War II, the British used it um, as a torpedo bomber and, and as, I think, a long-range maritime reconnaissance aircraft for uh, also anti-submarine aircraft. And um, even with this ridiculous, obsolete-looking anachronism, I think they pulled off uh, one of the most incredible combat records of all time. Um, the book I, I've written, which is called The String Bags, um, String bag was a nickname for the swordfish. Uh, details three of the aircraft, well, probably it, its most famous actions. Uh, the strike against the uh, Italian naval base at Toronto in uh, November of 1940, the uh, pursuit of the battleship Bismarck in 1941, and then the Channel Dash when the Germans attempted to run three uh, capital ships through the English Channel at the start of 1942, um, and this detailed the, the Swordfish and her crews uh, part in in these three um, major instances. So this is why you listen to the Proceedings podcast. You get breaking news about what's happening <laughs> on every front. So it, that's very exciting. Yeah, and you also. Uh, so I, I wanted to just draw a little bit. Naval History Magazine about a year, year and a half ago, published a great story about that uh, swordfish attack at the Gulf of Toronto against the Italian Navy, as you said, November 1940, uh, which 
should have presaged the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor if people had been paying attention uh, because it was the very, very similar type of attack. The Japanese were paying attention. Uh, we sadly were not. Oh. So again, lots of ways here with the Naval Institute to slice and dice any subject matter. And that's a great one right there. So Megan, where can the audience find out more about the other titles, not to mention the Night Witches? Uh, the first place I'd point you to is www.deadreckoning.org. All our books are available there. You can find out anything you need to know um, from that. But we're also on social media. So you can follow us at um, on Twitter at Dead Reckoning Graphic Novels or Facebook too. Like a lot of things we do innovatively, including the podcast, it starts as kind of an idea. I mean, US and I News would fall under this category, but but Dead Reckoning is obviously something that has launched and it's at, at flying speed and we're going we're gonna to blow, blow this out in all kinds of different ways. It's super exciting. And to have Garth do an original title for us, uh, we can't overstate how cool that is for this brand. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. It's been another great week of the Proceedings Podcast. And remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. Thanks for your time, Garth. Thank you.